We are moving along in this series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within. Do you know what week we're on? We're on week 28, so we've been really at this for a while. And today, we look at the city of God. The city of God, for you, equals the good life. So this life that you are working so hard to create, this life that you're praying for, this life that you want so badly, what it is, really, it's simply the city of God. And it's the place of joy, it's the place of peace, it's the place of singing and dancing and laughter. And it's the, it's the place where the mute will one day sing, and the deaf will hear the songs of heaven, and the cripple will run through the halls of paradise. And God himself will be there with us, and he will play with the children, and he will sit at the table with us, and he will dance with us. And that is everything that you're seeking, whether you know it or not. And the Bible is a story where we learn all the way from the beginning in Genesis 3 that the city is lost. And the whole rest of the Bible is trying to teach us where it went and how it's going to return and how for us to get there. And the, the reality is, Everything tells us two things. We're dealing with this question. Is the city real or not? Is there a hope for our life or not? And if it isn't, then hope is cruel. I'm in a writing group, and most of the people in the writing group aren't Christians. And I'm writing a a Christian spiritual formation book, so it's pretty fun. And there's an old German atheist in the group. And, and he said to me, David, hope is cruel. And he's right, actually. Hope is cruel if the city does not exist. If all there, in the end, all it is is poof, we're done, then hope is absolutely cruel. It's like a demonic trick. But if it is true, then it changes everything. If hope is real, then it changes your mindset it changes your attitude. It changes your character even. You know, there's an old form of torture. And it's said that this form of torture, torture is taking a boulder and rolling it up a hill and then rolling it back down over and over and over again until you go mad. Now, the Christian hope is, says, okay, maybe that's your life. Maybe you feel like that's your life. But the Christian hope says, but at the end of 10 years, let's say, you will get a billion dollars. And you will meet the love of your life. And you will have a palace right at the edge of like a mountain that overlooks the shore. And somehow the sunrise and the sunset, you both see it because you're at at this cliff. You see both the sunrise and the sunset. And that's what awaits you after these 10 years of building, pushing this boulder up and down the hill. Now that's what Christian hope is. Because what it does is it makes you have joy as you're doing tedious work. Because you're looking to your future and it's inhabiting the present. So hope is powerful. It changes you. It lifts you up. And you can lift other people up with it. And I want to tell you this. If you look at all other religions, there is no hope like the Christian hope. The amount that Christianity promises, the magnitude of it, I mean, it is far greater than any other promise. The question is, is it real? And that's what we're trying to figure out today. Is there a hope for this greater city? And so I want to give you the setting of the verses before I read them. 
we're, we're looking at Acts, and Paul is the villain of Christianity who has turned into the greatest Christian movement leader in the history of the world. And when Paul becomes a Christian, he goes back to the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to see all of his old buddies, but now they know he's a Christian. So they want him dead. So the Christian leaders say, Paul, you got to leave. So he leaves the city, and as he's gone, he does all of this great missionary work, and he's maturing into what could be called the greatest movement leader in the history of the world. But as he's maturing, the whole time, he's got his eyes fixed on getting back to Jerusalem. And there's this part where the Holy Spirit tells him, you got to go back. Now is the time. So everything in Acts has been culminating. It's been building up to the climax of Paul returning to Jerusalem. And as he's about to go, his friends say, we have also heard from the Holy Spirit, Paul. And the Holy Spirit is telling us that if you go to that city, you're going to die. And he says, I'm going to go anyways. This is my purpose. This is my mission. Now, why would he do that? Why would he risk everything? That's what we're going to answer today. So we're in Acts 21, verses 27 through 36. God's word to us. It says this, when the seven days were almost completed. Okay, let me say, the seven days, this is a purification process that Paul is going through. He doesn't think he needs to go through it, but in order to fit in with his old friends and get into their world, he enters a purification process before he gets into the temple. So when the seven days were almost completed... The Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For when they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, all that Jerusalem was in confusion. He, the the tribune, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him. And ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered Paul, him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Our first point, the lost city. The reason Paul returns to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is supposed to be Eden, come back. It's the lost city that's returning, and it's the hope of the world. So the question you should be asking is, what is Eden? Eden is the source of life because it is the perfectly pure presence of God. So where Eden is, there is life pulsating because God is there in Eden. And when God, go back to creation. When God created the world, at first, the first two verses of the Bible, we see that there was a void. There's an emptiness. There is a darkness and a chaos and a nothingness. There's like a meaninglessness there. And then when God spoke, 
Eden bloomed. Like it rose up out of the ground. And this is where the perfect, pure presence of God is. It's like a temple. So Eden is the temple garden of God where the pure presence of God is found. And Jerusalem, we see, has a temple in it. Everything is telling us to see, okay, Jerusalem is the place where the good life will bloom again. And we need to understand a bit about Eden in order to understand Jerusalem. Eden, it's often said, is perfect, but that is not true. Eden is not perfect. It's good. For something to be perfect means it's reached its end, its goal, its telos. It reached the finish line. But the Hebrew word for good in Genesis there is tov, which means something is swimming in potential to reach its finish line. It's like it's something that's burning from within to reach what it's setting out to reach. And the way for Eden to reach its perfect, like, perfection requires a partnership between God, Eden, and humanity. And what God tells humanity to do is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over all the earth. And then, so what we're supposed to do is to take the goodness and beauty of Eden and expand it out until it covers all the earth. We're expanding Eden into the void, into the chaos. Partnership between God and humanity. And to do this, we've got to feast on the tree of life that will nourish us. Only while humanity is feasting on the tree of life, there's another tree off to the side, and a snake has slithered up into this tree and has whispered a half-truth. If you eat of this fruit over here, You won't die. You'll live, and you'll be like God, and then you can build your own city, the city of man, right? So it's a half-truth. And it's in this moment, like, remember what Adam's supposed to do. Adam and Eve are supposed to rule over the garden and expand the garden. But what we see here is a snake coming in and ruling over Adam. And while Adam should have crushed that snake into the ground, The snake crushes Adam into death. This is a lie that creates murder, a lie that creates death. It's at this point that everything is lost. And so the garden is gone. And everything in you right now, because you know where you've been sent? Back into the void, back into the darkness back into an emptiness. So what that means is everything inside of you right now is searching out how to figure out how to fill the emptiness. And there's emptiness all around you. The empty seat at the dinner table where once sat someone that you loved, but they passed away. The empty seat, the empty car seat, because you've just sent your daughter or son into kindergarten. The the empty place in your heart because someone you love has left you. And then we're in the void and in the darkness, so there's sickness. And there's the chaos of a a failed career. And it just continues on and on. And and we we just want to know that we're going to be okay. And so we're seeking to find the good life in this desert place. And everybody's seeking it. 
Not just Christians, not just religious people, all of us. The drug lord, he's seeking the good life. He thinks if he can build this empire, then he can have a palace and he could be taken care of and he can take care of other people that he loves. The businessman who lies and cheats and steals, he thinks the good life is on the other side of success and if he can just get it, he's going to get the good life. The, the teacher who is pouring her life out for her students, trying to give them the good life, feels that maybe, just maybe, if she works hard enough, she'll earn the good life. Or the woman who wants to find the perfect man, and if she could just find him, then she'll finally have the good life. Now, the problem with all of this is, well, the, the drug lord, eventually people will turn on him. His family will get kidnapped. It's the making of a good story. I don't know. Uh, or or the, the businessman, who's going to trust him now? His business will fall. The teacher's not going to feel appreciated like she wants. And the woman chasing after the perfect man who finally finds him will soon find out he is not so perfect. We're in the void. We're in the emptiness. And we're seeking a cure for it. And I want to tell you what that is. There is a distant lost memory that still resides somehow in your soul. And God has put it there. And what it is, it's a longing for Eden. Because let me ask you this question. How do you know something is wrong? How do you know things aren't the way they're supposed to be? Who told you that? Nobody told you. It's in you because God put it there. And what that feeling, what that longing is trying to do is to try to get you to search out for Eden. And so we head out the door and we open up the door and we walk out into the emptiness in the void in the wilderness. And we say, where is Eden? And it's lost. So we get to this place where we're hopeless. So should we remain hopeless? Well, Jerusalem is supposed to be the new Eden that's come down. Because we couldn't build it anymore. We're in the desert, so Jerusalem is the new Eden come down. And Paul wants to go there because he sees Jerusalem as the new Eden that he is supposed to help build out to cover all the earth. So this is our second point. So how you're supposed to see Jerusalem is a garden city in the desert waste that has been put here. Hebrews, watch, I'll prove it. Hebrews 8.5 says the temple is a copy or shadow of heavenly things. Copy or shadow of heavenly things. Okay, watch this. It's so cool. It's so cool. So you're supposed to see the temple, Jerusalem in the temple, as like an imprint of Eden. And, and let me show you how. In the temple, there's a special room called the Holy of Holies. And in this room is the perfect and pure presence of God. Now, only one person once a year, is able to go into the presence of God, the high priest, once a year. And before the high priest goes into the temple, because he's very impure, like all of us, he ha there has to be all these sacrifices made, and he has to wear these special clothing. He has to go through this long purification process. And then finally, this high priest, once a year, can go into the temple. Now, what, what he's becoming is like a new Adam. And in this temple, he's experiencing Eden, in the presence of God. And then he's supposed to come out of the temple. And he, first in the inner court, he sees all the priests. And it's like, here's what Eden is like. And then the priests tell the regular Jewish people, hey, it trickles down to them. And they're like, here is what Eden is like. And then in the far outer courts are the outcasts, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. 
And they, if they're lucky, hear echoes of what Eden is like. And then Paul comes along. And Paul has the audacity to say something like, every single person, the outcast, the worst and most vile of sinner, at any moment of their life, any place where they are, can simply walk right into the presence of God, into the holy of holies, and enjoy the glory and the beauty and the worth of God and just be mesmerized by him. And like the, the glow of his glory shines upon their face. And this is what can, anybody can do this. And this is Paul's message that he's about to bring into the temple. He's been spreading this message all about. And before he even has a chance to speak, they see him and they beat him to the point where he can't even walk. Now, okay, think about this. How did Eden bloom? By the word of God being spoken. Paul is about to bring the word of God, the word about God, into the temple so that Eden might bloom there. And before he can even speak or say a word, they crush him. And, okay, here, the question you should be asking is, what does this mean for you? And what it means is that at any moment, at any time, you can go into the presence of God. But, I mean, let's get a little bit, let's get a little bit wild here. Right after you sin, Christ is waiting there to welcome you back to him. Like, he's, he's winning you over with his tenderness right after you sin. And if you'll even let me say, be so wild as to say this, even in the middle of your sin... He's there looking at you with love and with approval and with tenderness, not because you're sinning, but because of your faith in him. And he looks at you and he loves you. And it's his tenderness in that moment of knowing that that will lure you away from your sin. He'll draw you back from the darkness and bring you into the light of life. He's bringing you out of the void and into Eden again. Something greater than the temple is here is what's said about Jesus. He's the temple that's come. He's the greater sacrifice. The sacrifice is needed for all the purification of sins. Look at this. Like, watch what happens. When, when Adam and Eve sin, they're naked and ashamed. When Jesus lives a perfect life, he becomes naked, despising the shame that he's given on the cross. That's what's said about him. What else is said about him is he is crucified outside the city gates. Now look, what does Jerusalem represent? The city of God. It represents Eden. So he's exiled from the city and he's crucified and killed out there so that when he dies, he would become the greater sacrifice and then the doors of the city of God swing open and the doors of the temple swing open and the doors of the Holy of Holies swing open and you can just run into the presence of God, a sinner and all. Because your problem is, let me tell you your problem. You think if you get yourself cleaned up, you get to go into the Holy of Holies. And it's the exact opposite. Once you become so aware that the Holy of Holy doors is shut to you, and your only hope is Christ, the doors swing open, and you, a sinner, runs into the presence of God. And this is why the Jewish people are so angry at Paul, because this is the message he's been saying, and they know it. And he was with one of his friends, his new Greek friends, and they saw him running around the city with this Greek friend, and they thought he brought him into the temple. Now, Paul knew better than to do that because that was caused an uprising. 
but they assume that he did. And so what they, what they do is they beat him close to death, and then they say these words about him, away with him. These are the same words that are uttered and spoken about Christ right before they kill him. Like Paul's got to see the writing on the wall. Like, is this my death? And just before, watch, this is so cool. Like, I'm really geeking out on Bible stuff here, um, but we're going to have fun with it. So, (laughs) So, right before they say away with him to Jesus, Pilate, kind of like the leader of the city, he comes up and he gives the, the religious leaders two options. He doesn't see, Pilate does not want to see Jesus crucified. So he gives them two options. He says, I have this man, Barabbas, who is a murderer. He's a vile man. And I have this man, Jesus, here. Now we know Jesus is the giver of life. And we have Barabbas, who's a murderer, who's the taker of life. So what do, they, what, what do the city leaders do? They say, set Barabbas free. We're going to take Barabbas and set him free. We're going to take, okay, so Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Well, we have Barabbas, a murderer. And the city leaders let a murderer loose in the city of God, and they take the man who is life and the source of life and kill him. So they take the man of death and let him live, and they take the man of life and kill him. This is Eden all over again. This is taking the fruit all over again. They took a murderer, listened to him, and set him free. And they took the author of life and killed him. And, but, but the irony of Christ, this is the goodness of God, is he would use our vile evil to crush the head of the snake, which we should have done all the way back in the beginning. And here's how he does it. The cross becomes the place where the serpent would bite his heel. This is like the promise of the Old Testament. And as soon as Christ stomps on the head of the snake, he dies because he's being struck by the snake. And on the cross, he dies. And he enters into the deeper void, the deeper darkness, the deeper chaos. But then he rises up and Eden blooms in our world. It's back. Eden has come back in him. And, like, if you want out of the emptiness, the promise is that it's in him. He's the source of life. He's the new Eden come. All of your problems will not go away when you become a Christian, but you'll have life through them. And let me say this. If you are skeptical of Christianity, like, the forgiveness thing sounds really good, but you're skeptical of it all, and you want some proof Here's going to be your problem. The proof is on the other side of the door. Faith is the key that opens up the door to the Holy of Holies. And as soon as you walk in, you say, it's all real and I believe it all. This is amazing. But to get there, you have to have faith. And you're saying, I need some proof before I have faith. And so the sad story will be that you never get the proof because you never had faith. St. Augustine says, I believe so that I might understand. Everything that you want to understand is on the other side of that door. The other side of the door into the Holy of Holies. And the way in is through faith that opens up the door where you can enter in. Everything you wonder about, all the wonder in your heart, all the, the desire in you to seek joy and happiness and peace is on the other side of the door. 
Faith is the key that opens it up. Now, if you're a Christian, here's your problem. You thought you were getting Eden. And you are, it's just not come yet. In fact, your life seems to have gotten worse once you become a Christian. And I'm going to tell you why that's happened. There's an ache that comes when you become a Christian. Because now you've tasted the sweetness of heaven. But it's like you taste it, but then it's gone. And we're living in these moments where we know something, like we've entered into the Holy of Holies, but then there, there are moments where it seems like we've been sucked out. And it's like more painful because we've experienced something so beautiful and now it feels like we've been robbed of it. So there's an ache that comes with the Christian life. But it's a good ache because it's what keeps drawing you back to the Holy of Holies. You keep remembering it and you're like knocking on the door. And you know, it's, it's just like this faith move all over again. Like, okay, I believe, help my unbelief and the doors swing open. And God just like rains his beauty on you. And you've got to understand this. When that happens, you're in the desert experiencing it, right? Eden is coming, so things aren't perfect because, well, Eden is not here yet. But you're getting a taste of it. You're getting a little echo of it. And what you do when that happens is you begin then to be nourished by the tree of life, and you take the work back up again. What's the work? To build Eden out. So in Christ, the tree of life nourishes you, and then you build Eden in the waste. And it's hard work. It's like some thorns and thistles, but it's good work. And when you do it, you're taking the beauty, the goodness, the glory of Eden and spreading it out. And it's hard work, and Paul knows it. Uh, You know what happens with Paul and his, like, this could be the story of his life. He's holding the glass of the waters of Eden out. And what keeps happening is people knock the glass over and strike him. But he keeps doing it. Like, how does he have the strength to do it? Because he keeps staying in the Holy of Holies. He's in the desert wilderness, but yet at the same time, he's in the Holy of Holies. And so when he's struck and he's close to death... He's got the joy of the presence of God. Like, if you want that kind of courage and strength, it's simple. Just be in the presence of God, and you'll have the joy. You know, joy does this for you. Joy gives you strength. Joy will give you courage. Joy will build your character. Joy will give you confidence. Joy is everything that you need, and the place of joy is in the Holy of Holies. Joy makes you more loving. Makes you a better spouse, makes you a better parent, makes you a better son or daughter. Everything you need is joy, and it's all in the Holy of Holies. And here's here's what else. Once you get into the Holy of Holies here in the desert, you find something out. Paul knows this, that there is still something yet that's better than Eden. Something better than Eden. This is our last point. Eden is good, but it was only a shadow of what is to come. You know, the the problem with Eden is there's a snake in it. The problem with Eden is there's this tree that can ruin everything. But the new Eden to come does not have such a snake, and it does not have such a tree. And even if it did, you would have become, in this new Eden, the type of person that if you did see that snake, you would stomp its head and be done with. In other words... Sin no longer reigns. 
the vile sickness and the darkness of this virus called sin is no longer going to be plaguing you. I mean, can, can you just imagine, like, the sin that haunts you? It's like lurking around the corner. You're going to leave here, and there's going to be something that happens. Like some of you are angry drivers, and somebody's going to lurk around the corner, and then you're going to get really mad at them, and you're going to have the Grove bumper sticker on the back of your car, but you're going to be giving someone the bird or something. Like that's not a good thing. Sin is always there, like ready to pounce on you. You need a beauty that is greater to bring you out of that. And there's going to come a day when you will never be able to sin again. You won't want to. You won't need to. You'll know it won't give you the good life. But even, even the knowledge, like, you don't care because you're in the good life. There's no reason for you to sin to try to get the good life because you're living in the good life. Everything is good, beautiful, wonderful, perfect. Now, the place of this new Eden, do you know what it's called? The New Jerusalem. At the end of Revelation, it says that the New Jerusalem, heaven will come down. And then heaven and earth will be united together as one forever, consummated. And when that happens, there will no longer be hurt, death, pain, sickness, loss, brokenheartedness. All of it is wiped away. And this strange thing will also happen. You'll look back at your life that had some suffering and pain, and somehow you'll know that the suffering and pain has made glory all the better. It's like even the bad stuff is used for good by God. This is what he does. This is what he did with his death. This was a horrible thing. Eden blooms because of it. He's in the business of redemption. And when that happens, you enter into this place, you will have finally exchanged your shack in the desert for a palace in paradise. And you'll feel the warm tingle, the glory of God on your face. And it will cause this bright smile to come over you. And you won't be able to make it go away. It's, it's like e- eternal laughter in you. Though you may not be laughing or not, it's just all of that in you, that joy and happiness, it's there. And it's not going to leave you. So what does that do to you? I mean, just thinking about that gives you a bit of joy, right? Now, I want you to see what's just happened there. If joy got into you, The future has inhabited the present. Eden has come in. Heaven has come down. Um, Eternity has entered into time. It's like what is to come has been reversed and brought into the present. And that's what hope does. You see how powerful hope is? Hope will get you through anything. Because if the worst thing that could have ever happened is the death of God on the cross, which led to the best thing that could ever happen to humanity, then that tells you that even the bad things that happen to you will be reversed, they will be undone, and everything sad will come untrue. And when life is difficult, or when you're in the middle of sin, I'm going to tell you this about sin. Like, sin... Be careful here. Sin can draw you into the presence of God. Now, not sin. Sin can't do it. But the forgiveness on the other side of it allows you to taste a sweetness that you probably wouldn't have found if you had not sinned. Now, please listen to me. I'm not telling you to go sin right now. But when you do, 
When you do, you have your savior king of Eden who stands right there, like is like rubbing your back, like just come on, walk away from this. And as soon as you turn around and you see him, you remember him and his love and his tenderness and you're swept up in and you're like, oh, if I hadn't have sinned, I wouldn't have done this because I think that I'm good enough on my own. But when I get my awareness of my sin, that's when I turn to you. So I don't want to sin, but when I do, you're always here. And the same thing happens with your pain. The pain that you experience, because this is the way God works, it's the way Christ works, and it's the way you work. When, when you are in the desert, you're very aware of how thirsty you are. And when you're in the middle of pain, you're very thirsty for joy and for peace. And that is when you reach for the cool glass of water who is Christ. And he's there to nourish you, to give you life. He's the cool, sweet water of life that is always offered to you. And all of this is possible because Christ has left the cool of the Garden of Eden, and he's come to us who are wandering around in this desert waste. And when he gets to us, he offers us the cool glass of water of life, and we knock it down, and we kill him. And he would use that for good, because what happens when Jesus dies on the cross— outside of the, city of the city of God, in the waste, in the wilderness, when he dies, the door of heaven is ripped open in his death. And now there is a path in. And there is a way for Eden to come down. And then when he rises up from the grave, he rises up out of the dust, up out of the dirt, up out of the, the decay and the death and the void. And he rises up and brings Eden with him. That's why he's the tree of life. That's why we feast on him forever. And if you will do that, what will happen to you is this. You will stand upon the edge of the world and you will reach out. And when you do, you can take and eat of the fruit of the tree of life and be nourished here because he's come. And when you do that, you are nourished to do what? Guess what? To bring Eden in the desert waste. So Eden begins to bloom through you, the Christian. Like, realize it and start doing it. I think one of the biggest problems Christians have is we're here because we want to be fed, but we're never fed to go and nourish the world and to build Eden up. You have a very important job to do. Don't neglect it. Stand at the edge of the world, feast on Christ, and then bring Eden all around you. Let's pray. Father, in your sweet goodness, you haven't left us. You've seen us as rebels, as those who have let a murderer loose in your city. We deserve nothing but death, but you give us nothing but life. So we pray that you would nourish us now as we feast upon your truths. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Today we are going to enjoy the Lord's Supper communion. Now, before we do this, I want to explain what's happening here. What we have is really two kind of banquets. We have one where we see the sacrifice of Christ that is made. The breaking of his body. The pouring out of his blood. But as it's happening... We have to also set our mind on the future of the heavenly banquet that is to come. 
where we will dine with God forever in paradise. And what's happening here, like, like the sacraments are the visible words of the good news of the gospel, the visible words of Christ who's come down, died, and rose. And when we see the visible words happening and then we partake in it, we, we are acting out how we have been swept up into the story. So it's a move of faith. Like when you come up here, these are steps of faith. Like this is the presence of God. And by faith, you are walking up to the door of the Holy of Holies. You're looking at Christ, your Savior, who has died and the doors have opened up and you enter in through him. And yet somehow now he's been risen from the grave and you see him there as the tree of life and you feast on him. That's what this is about. And it's the story that you're in. And, and to be in the story, you just simply walk into it. Not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, but because you opened the door and went in. So that's what I'm inviting you to do today. Um, I want to pray for you. Um, before I do, we have in the baggies here, gluten-free bread. In the middle, this is our like COVID-safe area if, if you're scared and then over here uh, we have freshly baked bread with wine or juice whichever one you pick so it's it's an eternal feast here before you so let me pray for us and then i will tell you what happened to jesus father we pray that you'd send your spirit to us now to be with us and in us and among us, that unite us together as your body and that we would see that as your body is broken, that is the way that you've knit us to you and you have knit us to one another. That not only is this meal a communion with you, but it's a communion with each other, with you. And a beautiful divine meal that leads to a Trinitarian dance that we have been swept up into. God, thank you for not leaving us in the desert. Thank you for coming. And as we see in your death, the sand of the desert that's caked with your blood, we would know that your blood was spilled so that we might have a way in to Eden forever. Help us take and eat, not of the tree of death, but the tree of life, who is you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at The Grove Church Official, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.